You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to let you know that we're hiring a design director here at Glitch. We're growing every day, and we're looking for a design director to not only help build a team of talented designers here, but also to help deliver a unified experience to our audience of consumers, curators, and creatives. If that sounds like something that's right up your alley, then check out the show notes for a link to the job listing. Now let's hear a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Sappy North America's Ideas That Matter program. Sappy, a maker of high-quality printing, packaging, and release papers, as well as dissolving wood pulp, is now celebrating the 20th year of this unique grant competition. Since it began, the program has given more than $13 million in grants and supported more than 500 projects to benefit social causes. Ideas That Matter has also worked with amazing designers, many of whom we've also featured here on Revision Path, including Dee Nichols, Rich Holland, Dory Tunstall, Silas Monroe, uh, Jacinda Walker, Maurice Woods, Bobby Martin Jr., and Antoinette Carroll, who will be a judge this year. If you're a designer who cares about social issues, I mean, whether you're a professional designer, a student, or a design team, then the 2019 deadline to apply for a grant in this program is July 19th. To learn more, visit sappy.com forward slash ideas that matter. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 30-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Jamil Bonick, a multidisciplinary designer from Atlanta, currently working as a product designer at Etsy in San Francisco. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Jamil Bonick, and I am a product designer at Etsy. I really consider myself a generalist. So um, that means visual design. That's really where I kind of got my start. Um, obviously, product design. And um, I've been doing front end web development for a while, too. Now, you're pretty new at Etsy. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. This I started on May 13th, so that would make it almost at the, the two-month mark. Wow. Okay. Yeah. How's it been so far? Man, it's, you know, it's this kind of this idea that I kind of always challenge in my, like, freelance and more so entrepreneurial days of, like, how much a company can, like, care about their employees. But uh, really, Etsy has really challenged those original assumptions of, like, I mean, they, they just really come through and this is kind of like red thread that I've been hearing from all the employees that like they really do care. So the experiences has been great. The the perks are really good. People are chill. It doesn't seem like anybody brings like drama or egos. And also the work is challenging. I don't know if you uh, I mean, some people would consider Etsy like a world class design team, um, which is really kind of where I was looking for in this stage of my career. And. I mean, literally, like everybody I 
talk to as a designer just is always dropping knowledge. So I really see the opportunity to uh, learn from people, which is like, to me, you know, you, you can't really uh, replace that. So overall, thus far, two months in, kind of getting my feet wet. I, I, I love it. Um, it is really definitely a great uh, work environment. Is the culture what drew you to Etsy? Partially. So um, as we mentioned, uh, we know, uh, we both know Kat. She's been mm-hmm. on the show a few times. She was one of the people who I saw really like advocating online. And um, I, I know she was really instrumental in like some of her projects with the people of color project talking about like work environments that are like safe for black people or maybe say it's not the right word, but chill for black yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> and she, uh, she's been an advocate one. Um, so I, I knew from that and just like kind of really hearing other things that it was just like a really great culture people like working with each other. There wasn't like tons of egos. And I know that's kind of one of the things that they particularly hire for. At the mm-hmm. beginning, when I even when I started reaching out for like my interviewing stage, like the people I talked to were super chill. They like kind of helped me through the process. It didn't really seem like it was like this battle. Like we really I really felt like they were on the same team. And, and I guess that was really uh, a major part of me actually moving forward with them. Yeah, it has it, been a wonderful experience. Like literally from the first day I talked to somebody when they responded to my uh, application. So nice. What's a regular work day like for you there? So at this point, um, <laughs> so I'm on the West Coast, but I work on East Coast time. So I literally get there every morning, open the office. Uh, I always have a 730 a.m. meeting, which is usually a pretty chill kind of like status update meeting. But then after that, I kind of just sit down, drink some coffee, prepare myself for the day. Right now, I have about like two or three projects that I work on. Just kind of set up a checklist. Use I use I'm not sure if you're familiar with the to do app, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it's super dope, beautiful design. But yeah, just kind of plan out and have a checklist of what I want to get done today and go over all my meetings. One thing I can say more than any other company I've ever worked with, SC is about their meetings. But it's really chill because like everybody's so cool, so it's kind of like this refreshing social interaction that you know, kind of just like kind of gets the day going and getting to like nerd out and geek out over the details of like the project. So, and like I said, kind of playing back to the no ego thing, the interactions really just like uplift your mood. Like a lot of times I feel more energized leaving the meetings than when I went in. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's mostly about just kind of like setting that checklist in, in terms of the actual work. Mostly it's like, um, tweaking. I'm on the email and CRM team. So it's like kind of understanding the uh, email design system and really thinking about from a proactive perspective, like where can I improve it? Where can I like kind of show my value? And uh, been doing a few landing pages, small ones here and there. I'm still getting my feet wet and they're still kind of giving me introductory projects. Mm-hmm. But um, for the most part, just kind of thinking through that logic and um, really trying to get familiarized with the customer or uh, our end user uh, on both sides because it's a, a multi-sided platform. Um, and uh, just trying to like, one of the things, the piece of wisdom that I've kind of learned going into this is like, is a lot of this stuff is really about building connections. And that's one of the big things about like being in SF, really just like taking that time to like get to know people. That's one of the major pushes. So I'm always like, you know, scheduling meetings or sitting down and going to other people's meetings, uh, doing research with them and stuff like that. So I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe a meeting, particularly a work meeting 
as refreshing. So I think that's a testament <laughs> to, to Etsy's culture there. Yeah. Um, so like when you have new projects that you're working on, like on the email and CRM team, how do you approach a new project? Like walk us through that. So it, it really comes down to, especially at the early stage in that I am um, at the company uh, is understanding the context and trying to wrap my head around the problem. So one of the major things that I've been really um, trying to focus on is understanding who the key stakeholders are in a given project, whether that's on the brand team, whether that's on, whether that's a, a UX copywriter, uh, the design systems team, et cetera, et cetera, and bring them all together and making sure I understand their perspective. Cause like literally every time I talk to somebody else is like, damn, that was an invaluable piece of information that if I didn't talk to you, it put it, no telling what direction I would have went in. So that that's a major part. The companies I worked at before Etsy didn't have such a, I've never worked at a product company like this before. So it's like just kind of understanding that paradigm and understanding where the responsibility uh, lies on me to like bring in those stakeholders and kind of champion that role. So basically it's just about bringing those stakeholders in, understanding the full context of the problem. Uh, I really been pushing myself to just like, I mean, obviously designers are supposed to do this in general, but like really starting to understand what it means to empathize with the user. So like, I kind of like, like uh, yesterday I was just thinking like, looking at my designs, like pretending I'm the actual person I'm designing for and like going through it and really trying to put myself in their shoes when they're trying to solve that problem and making sure that I give as much context or, uh, you know, I bring as much empathy and um, understand and design for the solution, like in their shoes. And of course we have a lot of opportunities to like talk to um, stakeholders that, who are very familiar with the research who can say like, Hey, this is right or this isn't right because we know this thing about the user or not. And that really, uh, like I said, allows me to kind of like be kind of close as close to the truth as possible. But yeah, uh, getting that initial research. And then the thing is, too, that's really cool about Etsy is we have like really cool uh, design critique sessions. So like I can have the opportunity to challenge any assumptions that I may have. And like I said, because it's, you know, it's a product company, people have been working there, have been really familiar with the same end user and really started to like build that relationship to kind of hone that in and then put together a few design mocks, keep testing it, keep iterating it. Um, and then eventually push live, collaborate with developers and, you know, get it out there, get the results, measure, see how uh, close I was, see how um, close we were able to get to, you know, the desired KPIs and the desired goals. So it sounds like UX is actually a pretty big part of what you're doing. And it's not just all, like front end or even graphic design stuff. Yes. That's one of the things that I've been most passionate about about recently is like really diving into like psychology, behavioral psychology, understanding how people tick, why people do the things they do. And it's been a little bit more of a challenge than I thought it would be initially going in, but it's really just kind of hone in and take those psychology principles and apply it to my design. Uh, apply to my design, I'm sorry. And a lot of ways that that manifests is like, well, typically if I'm sitting down and I'm working on a design, sometimes I could feel myself getting like too honed into the aesthetics because like I started off as a visual designer and I'm like, while the aesthetics are very important, I think they're just as important as like optimizing for uh, load time or 
one of those things, I think there's a, a definite functionality to aesthetics that kind of speaks to like believability and things like consistency are important when it comes to how people perceive your product. But at the end of the day, too, is kind of like empathizing why do people do what they do. I took this course on uh, psychological persuasion um, and uh, digital design. And I mean, every element to a certain extent is a part of the experience. It has like a, a psychological impact. So if you can understand these kind of like biases and fallacies that humans have and understand like their core motivations for why they do what they do and apply those principles, that's the only way I think you can really create effective products. And I think that really helps when you're displaying your design rationale to other designers. And I think it's really cool to be able to like equate that to psychology and psychological research. Uh, one of the things that I'm most passionate about is not only like learning more and creating more of that bridge because I'm so kind of in like in love with this uh, psychological research, but also using it as an opportunity to teach uh, other people like within the organization based on the stuff I learned and teach people outside of the organization. Because I do think that's a, a major key um, when it comes to, you know, putting stuff together uh really building effective designs. So this actually feeds into a question that uh, one of our, our audience members had sent in, which was what uh, psychology books or resources would you recommend for, let's say, designers or for teams that are interested in kind of working in product design, like what you're doing? One of the main books that are, that's really close to me that is really kind of informed the way uh, I think about design and really provides like, does a deep dive into psychology, but is like, provides ways to kind of extract knowledge from there to apply to my designs is uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Um, basically, he talks about this idea of, uh, it's called dual process theory. So essentially what that means is there's part of your mind that um, thinks fast and is automatic. So like if you say, what's two plus two, you don't have to really think about it. It's automatically four. But if you say like, what's 312 divided by pi, that's something that takes like conscious effort. And this book really explains kind of like what's the benefits of uh, each kind of state of mind and using like design knowledge, you can really apply that and really think about when you need somebody to like sit down and really rationalize something. Or if you want somebody to kind of make a quick automatic decision. It's a, a dense book, but I, I definitely recommend that. Uh, another book that I'm super fond of is The Psychology of Influence and Persuasion. So um, you can see Amazon using a lot of these principles, but like one of the main um, topics that they talked about as a, uh, as a way to persuade people is um, the use of scarcity. So when you see Amazon saying there's only three of these books left uh, and two people have them in their cart are, <laughs> you know, really kind of just making this appear like it's this like really limited um, resource. Like I'm really into streetwear and you see brands like Supreme doing this, like even in their actual website, they make it difficult. They actually build in barriers to get into and purchase the product. Uh, so initially you might think it's like in uh, a non-intuitive design, but the rationale is this idea of keeping scarcity throughout the product. So if it's more difficult, it makes it more difficult to obtain. And then next thing you know, they send out a push notification every Thursday. You have five minutes to actually purchase something before it's completely sold out. So it's this kind of idea of like resources uh, not being abundant that um, make people kind of like 
going back to thinking fast and slow, think automatically and just want to do something and not necessarily like rationalize it and, you know, make a decision more based off of feeling in the psychology of influence um, book is this idea of like social proof. So you see it everywhere. Instagram uses it a lot. 400 people like this picture. Not only did 400 people like this picture, here are the three friends that you uh, that you know and that you interact with the most that also like this picture. So you should like this picture too. Or, and you see it a lot in like commerce sites and things like that. But basically kind of like understanding what makes people tick that people themselves might not even be aware of. I think that's kind of where a lot of the uh, information comes from. It's another book called Predictably Irrational, which really dives deep into like how, I mean, just like the title says, people a lot of times make decisions based off of feelings. And it got is to the point where these psychologists are able to predict people's uh, irrational behavior. So, for example, there's this thing called loss aversion, um, which speaks to like people are more likely to. Uh, even if it's like the same value, people would prefer not to gain something versus losing that same thing because it's this idea that they, if they already have it, it's theirs. So it's this, they kind of intuitively give it um, uh, more value. And, and there's a ton. You can actually go on, uh, on my site and check out some, some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, even another one, the last one I'll, I'll mention specifically, the spirit of Kaizen. Kaizen is this Japanese um, philosophy and it's turned to like a, a more westernized business philosophy. But it's this idea of like taking small steps at a time to accomplish something. Essentially what it is, is like your brain has this paralyzing effect when you try to make too big of a change. Uh, there's this other book actually called Immunity to Change that's uh, really good. But it's like Kaizen provides a way to kind of like trick your brain uh, into making change by taking smaller steps. So if you're setting a goal, you know, don't set a huge goal, set a series of uh, uh, increasing very small goals, something that's almost absolutely effortless and do that. And at that point, your brain will develop neural pathways that allow you to kind of like sidestep this paralysis of, of big goals. And from a, a design perspective, a way to interpret that is like, sometimes it might, might not make sense for to take users to like a series of big chains on one sc- changes on mm-hmm. one screen. If you break it down into smaller steps, that's the way to kind of like ease that, that action of you, whatever you want to do. And I mean, you can kind of go on and on, but I, I do think these books and like kind of delving deep into psychology understand and understanding how people tick is like a absolute key to you know really making your designs like extremely effective and just you know pushing the button and having like even when it comes to talking to stakeholders if you can talk about the psychological underpinnings of why you did x y or z it's just more impactful um and it's a little bit harder to you know argue against you know, years of research and books that you can refer to our research papers and stuff like that. Plus, it's just it's fun. I think learning psychology helped me as like a social person and it helps me empathize with humans in general because it's like other people in general, because it's like people are to a certain extent <laughs> victims of their own humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they exist as a just kind of like one of the things that thinking fast and slow talked about uh they created this analogy of like a person riding an elephant 
the system to mind is the mind that thinks it's in control and is the person, but the elephant, the system one mind is this massive being that's really going where it wants to go. But the system two mind thinks it's in control, but system one mind is the, the, um, the, the subconscious mind, which holds all your beliefs and your feelings and really goes into like the rationale of why you do the things you do. One last book, last one, I promise. Unconscious Branding is another good book uh, that speaks to like, why did we do the things we do? Um, if anybody gets into UX research, one of the first things they tell you is like, you can't really trust what people say. You kind of got to interpret the why behind um, what they say or try to dig a little deeper and understand why they do what they do. And I mean, there's a series of maybe like seven core, uh, and this kind of gets into evolutionary psychology, but like seven core reasons, like people, procreation, um, safety, fear, you know, it's these like core social, uh, you know, being social beings, humans are naturally social. That's why like one of the books that I'm reading now, Matchmakers, uh, which was referred to me by the interim head of design at Etsy, uh, Michael Yap, super cool guy, um, talks about this idea of bringing these separate communities together. So in Etsy's case is bringing these sellers together with the, the buyers and understanding how they intertwine and creating that delicate balance that can lead to like an uh, ongoing marketplace. Um, but it, it's just kind of like even Instagram is this idea of like, social beings and people wanting to uh, naturally socially socialize with each other because social being able to be adequately social in humans early times was, uh, you know, how people survived. You couldn't survive if you weren't outside it. You couldn't survive if you were outside of the pack and couldn't, you know, vibe with the people in your circle. Everybody protected each other. So, like I say, it's just like these kind of core ideas that really shape human behavior. And at the end of the day, as a product designer, mostly you're dealing with human behavior and understanding why humans do what they do and understanding true, um, true intent. So that is a lot. Wow. I had no idea that Etsy was so thorough with making sure that you all know all this stuff around design, particularly around product and everything. That's amazing. Well, yeah. And, and a lot of stuff, I mean, uh, nothing against Essie, but, um, Michael, yeah, I talked to him. We had a really deep, uh, conversation, uh, one random day. He referred me to matchmakers, but really a lot of stuff was from, uh, the Georgia tech course I took, Mm. um, called flashpoint, which is like a, a startup incubator. I'm not for sure if you're familiar with it. I've heard of flashpoint. Yeah. Yeah. So me and two of the homies from, uh, Neurocode, uh, a company we could talk about, um, was went and, um, no, three of the homies and then uh, another friend outside of Nerco. And basically what they were talking about there was this idea of authentic demand. And basically <laughs> the whole idea, our majority of the idea coming in was like, hey, you have this, it's a, a startup incubator. So you have this startup idea and you come in and they incubate it and, you know, uh, really try to take it to the next level. So they invested in you. They gave us, uh, they invested $20,000. Um, and basically when they come in, they're like, yo, you live in a complete delusion where your product is actually a thing. And <laughs> uh, what we're here to really tell you is that unless you're experiencing this idea of authentic demand, you know, there's no way your product will succeed. 
So it's this guy, Merrick First, who is the um, – I think he's a founder, but I know he runs it. Um, and he really drives this point home of, like, really understanding behavioral psychology as a point of understanding how people tick, as a point of understanding ending how you can like create a, a successful business and I, I guess a simple way to put authentic demand is like he he forms it in the negative you have to you don't want to try to sell things that people want you want to try to sell things that people cannot not have so it's like in order for a person to exist and live and be consistent in the things that they do and say they are that that's kind of like what authentic demand is like if you put it in front of that person it's not like oh yeah you know that's kind of cool you know uh, yeah i'll get back to you later it's like beating down your door <laughs> you know flying out to come see you like i mean you could probably think for yourself of some things that you cannot not have like i, I mean I, I probably i don't know if i could come up with it example offhand but you know you you're doing you had a successful podcast it, it's a lot of things that you know could be a really aligned with your goals and who you are as a person that if somebody came to you i mean it could almost be like invaluable so that's probably where i really started to fall in love with behavioral psychology and then me and my friends we kind of just got obsessed with like just reading a whole bunch of psychology books and uh we really implemented it into like our day-to-day lives because we were so entrepreneurial we just saw it as a tool to like push us forward and it almost feels like it got to a point where like reading books felt like every time I read a new book, it felt like I added like a new superpower or like a new like weapon to my utility belt. Like it just, it, it was just like fundamental and instrumental to my success as uh, a designer and, you know, my ability to like socialize and my ability to connect with other people and my ability to like, kind of like just, you know, really have those conversations, I guess, that have put me, put me forward, just kind of like having this deeper understanding of humanity and not saying like I'm a professional psychologist or anything, but it is just enough to kind of like show that, you know, you care and are willing to dive deeper. And um, it, it's just been one of the most instrumental things mm-hmm. to my career. So you mentioned Atlanta. Let's, let's talk about that. Um, did you grow up here or did you move here? Like what's, what's the situation? How'd you end up in Atlanta? For all my people in Atlanta. <laughs> so I don't get nothing for this. I was born and raised in Stone Mountain. Uh, I moved out to, I was born in Latonia. I was born in Crawford Long Hospital. Okay. I moved to my first, my mom's first house was in Latonia. Then we moved to Stone Mountain, uh, Rock Ridge Road. We went to uh, Rock Ridge Elementary. Then we went out to Gwinnett County uh, and lived in Snellville. And that's where I lived out through my, most of my teenage years. Uh, I ended up going to, fortunate enough to go to Woodward Academy. They're horrible at that school. <laughs> my parents were pissed because tuition was so high, they pulled me out. Um, and then I ended up going to South Gwinnett um, High School, uh, which was, you know, deep. Not deep Snellville, but in Snellville, 78-124 for all the people who are familiar with that area. And then after that, I left and actually moved to the city of Atlanta. So um, I live in the metro Atlanta area. I mean, for all the people know from Atlanta, like it's a very um, large city and you got to have a car and, (laughs) you know, get around. But I actually lived in the city for like the last six years I was there. So born and raised, I really knew nothing else that was Georgia was kind of like my home. It was 
it actually took me a while to realize like it took me like living in other places to realize like how fortunate I was as a black person to grow up in uh, Georgia and in the Atlanta area, specifically the Atlanta area, the rest of Georgia, you know, mm-hmm. can be a little sketch, <laughs> but uh, particularly the Atlanta area is having like such a strong black middle class around me. Like I just thought that's how it was. <laughs> I thought everywhere, like black people was just doing what they had to do and flourishing, but you know, moving to other places and seeing other communities, I started to understand like uh, me and my girlfriend getting arguments over time. She's from DC, what's like the black Mecca, Atlanta or DC. But, you know, for me, Atlanta was like instrumental to my success, instrumental to like my confidence. Uh, and, and really showed me many examples of black people just doing the thing. So it was never a situation where I wasn't, you know, able to see people who who look like me uh, succeeding mm-hmm. around me. And speaking of that, I mean, you mentioned Neurocode, that being one of the, I guess, one of the businesses that you were involved with. Now, I actually knew about you for a while now through Neurocode. I think I, tra- I think I reached out to them maybe about like 2014, 2015. Oh, wow. Yeah, because we were doing features yeah. for the show and I heard about Neurocode and I reached out to, I think it was Isaiah or Giovanni, one of the two. Yeah. I either reached out to them or I met them at a meetup yeah. and asked about it, gave them my card. Um, is Neurocode still around? Neurocode is still around. Uh, I'm no longer officially with the company. I keep up with Isaiah. Okay. That's like the the big homie for life. Um, he's moved on to um, he's moved a company in a different direction, and uh, I haven't been in the loop in terms of the uh, specifics. But Neurocode is definitely uh, still around in a slightly different form from when I was in it. Gotcha. I wasn't sure if it was mm-hmm. or not because I mean, I, the startup scene here in Atlanta, as you know, is pretty big, and it, there's a lot of meetups and things mm-hmm. like that. So, like, I'll see people now and then. Although now I'm not super involved with it because I'm doing like more media things right now, so I'm not mm-hmm. as involved in the like startup or even the design scene here. I think as I as I used to be, but um, but you worked in and around Atlanta for a while. I think Nurico is probably one of the places you were at. For a good long while, but what was the next move after you left there? Um, so I actually ended up working with one of the people who uh, I worked at Nerco with. I'm not sure if you know Kimbo, uh, Kimbo Tom. That name sounds familiar. Yeah, he's one of the big homies. He's one of Ian's big homies, actually. Okay. Uh, which is an, another way I, I knew him, but it was still the same circle, the same Nerco circle. Like it's actually crazy how I started at Nerco. So basically, I was working doing plumbing with my dad and love my dad to death, uh, amazing person. But he was getting on my damn nerves. And <laughs> we, I was like, he really wanted me to be a plumber. And I was like, I really want to see this technology through, thing through. You know, I want to I want to be a designer. But, you know, parents, parents just don't understand. Will Smith said it his best. He like, why are you playing around on that computer? <laughs> like, <laughs> what you, you, need to, you need to come into a real job or whatever. Yeah. I had ended up joining this somewhat sketch hiker hostile uh camp uh, which was in the uh damn which street was that um it, it was downtown atlanta in the old fourth ward district okay and um the building that was in wasn't even completed yet you get when you ride up in the elevator you know you can see through the uh elevator and everything it was like super sketch my parents thought I was working at like some crack house. They did not believe anything <laughs> I was saying, but it was like, whatever. But that's actually where I met Naeem, uh, one of the other guys from uh, Nurico. Um, 
And this is before we joined Nerecode. So we had linked up, went through the Hawker Hostile camp. Like, it wasn't what we really expected, no surprise. We, we weren't learning as much as we wanted to. Um, we ended up just playing basketball a lot. <laughs> and it, it really wasn't, like, super focused like we expected. But through that time, we did manage to teach ourselves, like, HTML, CSS, um, and, you know, some basic de- design skills, enough to get us kind of uh, – going and able to network so through that experience after the hacker hostile camp was kind of like dying down and just kind of like fading away we were able to speak to the owner of the building at the time and this is like a 20 30 foot uh, floor building so it's like kind of crazy but we were like hey we can do like web design and graphic design services for you if you let us stay here for free (laughs) and he was like all right, because we had basically had this like really nice HTML mock-up that we were like kind of tweaking. We showed it to him and he was blown away. So it was like, bet. So he let us get a room. It was me, Naeem, and David. Mm-hmm. And it was literally like, uh, uh, it had to be like 150 by 150 square foot room with a small bunk bed in it and a couch. Wow. <laughs> and like, we literally did that for like six months. Just saying, like, yo, we're going to make a way no matter what. Like, we refuse to go back home to our parents. Like, we're going to make this happen. So, a lot of that time, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Hyperpotamus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, at the Biltmore Hotel in the basement. So we were Yeah, I almost worked it. for them once oh. upon a time as their editor-in-chief. Wow, that's crazy. So, yeah, we, yeah. you remember uh, uh, Jermaine Dupree always used to be down there. Yep. I think he had an office down there. But that's where we was... Um, like really going and networking. Uh, I know we met Yolanda uh, from Black Girls Code there. She was like really instrumental in our growth. Um, but that's where we actually met Isaiah. And he was just like, yo, I see y'all little homies hustling. Like, come, come, let's chop it up. I can put some money in your pockets. Like, basically an exact quote. It was like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. Like, let's do that, whatever. And we're supposed to connect when we ended up connecting. And then like a few weeks later, between the three of us, we were down to our last twenty dollars. Uh, I don't know if you remember when Marta was doing the uh, gold for a while for the uh, dollar coins, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we had a whole bunch of those. And uh, I think it was raised pizza across the street from the Biltmore. We were there. We always liked this buffalo chicken pizza, so we was like, "Yo, this is the last of our money. We go buy this buffalo chicken pizza, and then we yeah. just got to figure it out." So we sitting there like paying for the pizza in these coins. And Isaiah just happened to be there. He's like, yo, bro, what y'all doing? I thought y'all, I thought y'all was going to come chop it up. Like, what happened? He was like, bro, stop playing. I'm some money in y'all pocket. Like, come on, like, let's right. let's do this. So um, <laughs> it's crazy. So he ended up paying for that meal. Uh, our, literally was going to be our final meal uh, before we just had to, like, struggle, struggle. And um, we ended up linking up with him and Justin – uh and from there it was just like takeoff like we uh ended up doing work for like hbo we did work with caillou we did work with snoop dogg trap flicks that was a crazy experience that's where we met giovanni who ended up being like those are like my brothers and that that's really kind of where everything came we we started this application called wavy uh which was one of like my first like big ui uh design Mm -hmm. jobs and full on branding and stuff like that and got to a point where we had like 50,000 uh downloads um and like people was actively using it. I had like close friends that I put on when I was like actively using it essentially what it was was a uh, uh we wanted ways for users to be able to uh keep up with their favorite artists it, it was a pretty, pretty simple uh idea so if Lil Wayne dropped a mixtape 
then you get a notification and you can instantly download that uh, mixtape. So we had it on, because um, the mixtape scene, you know, it's free music. So we had it on um, iOS and Android. And like, it was a good thing, but the thing is we were hosting those files. So the server cost killed us Ooh. and we ended up shutting down. Exactly. Yeah. So, but all that being said, like that, that moment in my life was literally the genesis of like, what I consider now to be a successful career. And it really speaks to this idea of like having those big homies who particularly being black, uh, Isaiah's Rastafarian. And he, you know, just, uh, and dude's a genius. He like graduated early from Georgia tech with a mathematician degree. Like he could develop an app in a night, like dude's like crazy genius, but that, that was so instrumental. And one of the main things was he, that he was like, so every time I'm like, yo, I feel like I owe you, like you did so much for us. He like, yo, it's just about passing it to the next generation mm-hmm. and like doing that same thing that he did to us. So I like forever like grateful for those experiences. And I don't know if you know uh, Lucia Smith. Oh, he, I do uh, know Lucia. Lucia. Well, I don't know him, know him, but we, I think, are slash were in the same Black Design Group on Facebook. But I do, I've heard Lucia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lucius is the homie. He was so Isaiah paid Lucius to develop a design curriculum for me. Wow. I had syllabuses or syllabi and everything. <laughs> and because, like, to the, the point before I met Lucius, I was like really designing for aesthetic. Like, when I thought about even uh, interface design, it wasn't necessarily experience design. It was just like, how do things look? And a lot of times it was like, reusing solutions that might not have necessarily been tailored per uh, what the solution that I was designing for actually may require. So he basically showed me like the ropes and he really taught me design. He taught me design history. He taught me proper typography use. Like, cause I thought I was like doing something before I met him and he was like, looking at some of my stuff. He's like, yo bro, this is trash. (laughs) Wow. Wow. But to me, that was like, challenge accepted like yo like let's do this or whatever and we had uh we had done a lot of uh work together and he he was like so so instrumental like having this is this thing about atlanta like having these black mentors was like invaluable to like my career growth teaching me entrepreneurialism teaching me you know kind of how to deal with my money kind of how to present you know, preserve my sanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that was like my biggest faults coming up in, as a designer was this um, idea around like not taking on too much work. Like I would, it was points in times where I was like, like having anxiety attacks because it was like I had 13 clients at once and it was a issue like me valuing my worth because like particularly at that time, design work seemed so abstract i was like i can do it it feels pretty easy for me to do it like i feel like i can knock this out in two three hours like why would i be you know charging a whole bunch Mm -hmm. like how or how do i place a dollar value on that and i was like i'm so young my rent's cheap you know all these things like all these things like that so it was a point where i was taking a lot of work for cheap yeah and lucius was one of my clients and stuff and it it was a tough period because like i was letting i was letting a lot of people down and while also being broke. So I was stressed because I had so much work, wasn't completing the work on time like I should have been. It was broken, had nothing to show for it, which was like, yo, what the hell are you doing? Uh, which was funny. But the thing about my parents, though, like we had during the nursery, 
her code experience we had uh, we were featured on like fox news and uh like twice in uh the tech check for one of the uh, other local stations so like i was on tv so that kind of like uh-huh, counteracted uh-huh. <laughs> a little bit of it but for the most part, like I was really kind of struggling to kind of like understand my work. And I kind of came to the conclusion, which brought me to like where I am now, that freelancing is definitely not the way for me. It it works for certain people and it's definitely a way you can like really be about it to the point where you can really make your money and make more more money than you would like working for a company. Uh-huh. But I guess I wasn't as interested in the logistics side of it, of like chasing down checks and managing proper invoices and like applying interest and things like that. And like keeping up with like having a legal entity that could operate and paying taxes and all that stuff was like a, kind of an issue for me. Uh, so, but, I, and I really just felt like it needed to be a point where I was like kind of holding, honing in on my uh, uh, design skills more. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of people like stuck with me through that and kind of just saw like this a little homie and he having his growing pains and like not really holding it against me and like, keeping it real throughout that because we you know it, it was like especially when you start talking about money and business you know you can go through some rough times if you're not you know on top of it uh but uh also another person to shout out is um dante i don't know if you know dante he uh he runs the uh a, a few businesses he's like a, a serial entrepreneur he was a uh integral part uh joey womack i, I think uh you know oh, uh, from goody hack from right? goody hack super yeah. dope console kings uh we didn't work as closely with him but he was definitely like the family uh cj though, yeah cj even though we didn't like work but he was just another big homie who you always go to for advice he had the spades app and everything mm-hmm. i know he was doing stuff um with the avatars with microsoft which was really cool um so yeah just that atlanta experience was really like so much of providing like a, a solid foundation uh, I don't know if you know Jana Hicks. Um, Jana she, Hicks. I, I mean, you're, you're mentioning these names and they sound familiar. Like some of, some of them I know and some of them I'm like, I know I've heard the name before <laughs> yeah. somewhere. But Atlanta's kind of small like that yeah. in a way too, especially in like the, especially like the tech the scene. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, like you mentioned, you mentioned knowing Ian. We know, I, I went to school with Ian. I've known Ian for, she's 20 years probably. Yeah, I've known Ian for a long time. Yeah, man. Ian, he he's definitely one of the big homies, one of the coolest dudes I know. Well, well, well networked. He he's kind of he's pretty much been down from the the beginning. And him him and Isaiah, like we met most of these people through Isaiah, but yeah. him and Isaiah have been like super cool. And I, I I know they go way back. But like I say, and this is something that I started to notice networking and really understanding the power of networking, particularly within the black community. But just really saying like. It's such a powerful thing when you know the same people. Yeah. Like even coming here to this um interview and then like checking you out on LinkedIn and saying, Oh yeah, we got like eight people in common. Like, <laughs> and I know these people, like I could call them now and like, you know, I chop it up with these people and keep up with these people and stuff like that. So um yeah, it, it, it's just powerful. And it, one of the things that I've noticed even coming out to Cali, uh and seeing what the Silicon Valley SF uh, scene is like a lot of the particularly African American as a you know a subsect of the larger black community mm-hmm. um, are from Atlanta. Really, that are like, out there a, a decent amount. Yeah, Melvin is from Atlanta. 
another person that I connected to at um, YouTube was from Atlanta. One of the other homies who used to work at Yik Yak, then MailChimp, um, and then went out to go to Facebook is from Atlanta. It's only a handful of people that I know out here. Like I'm still kind of getting, you know, my feet wet, but the, it's no longer a surprise when I come out here and see like, Oh, you know, they came from Atlanta or they came from DC. And it's kind of really just a testament to like how much influences, uh, how are really just how much like DC and Atlanta are like powerhouses for, not only the black tech scene, but the black community as all. Well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so. really something. I mean, it's amazing. Even when I think about like the show and the folks who I end up meeting, who end up being connected to like this person who knows this person who knows this person. I think part of it is just because I've been able to, to talk to so many people. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even as you're like describing all the Atlanta experiences, I'm just like, I remember back when I had my studio like hustling. In that same way, you go to this place, like I'll go to Octane or somebody and meet someone there. And then they know somebody who might have been at Atlanta Tech Village or they might have been um, uh, over in Tech Square for something. You know, this is before um, what's his name? Rodney Sampson had the whole Tech Square Labs and all that stuff. Like I used to be around there all the time, just like at ATDC, hanging around there, just trying to like see what people were doing, see what work was going on. Man, yeah, that's <laughs> it, it's a it's a and and that, and that energy is still here too. Although right, I would you, say now, I don't know. Um, a friend of mine just spoke here recently. He was, I think, there was like a black tech conference here, and he was mentioning to some of the people there about how I guess other people that were in the same like incubator or accelerator, I guess, is what it was. They didn't even know other stuff that was going on. So, like, while there is that. I think very insular community in, in Atlanta in terms of that, it still can be pretty separated from other things. Like, I don't know if you experienced like how segregated it can be down here sometimes trying to work with other folks, um, just in the tech scene here, but I don't know. It's, I, I see what you mean about the connections coming from DC and Atlanta, which I think is, is nothing but, um, a good thing. And it's good that it extends out further than those two cities. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's kind of what it came to me. Like I had to like work on my networking skills to the point, like, like growing up kind of like nerdish. Uh, mm-hmm. I say I was like, like full level nerd, but you know, I was into technology heavy and, and in the game and pretty heavy. And like, you know, I, I was, I, I really embraced that side and wasn't like, crazy extroverted like i took the time and like i said it really like understanding psychology for some reason in a really non-intuitive way uh <clears throat> or like i wouldn't even say non-intuitive but it didn't necessarily it wasn't something that the aim wasn't to be more social right right learning psychology but yeah just like being able to network and like really pushing it to to the furthest extent is really what helped me kind of like just get out there and like somewhat be a social uh, butterfly of the black tech scene. And also to be honest, a lot of that was like having the big homies on the team who could like have those connections. So, and I'm I'm sure I'm completely oblivious to like other scenes. And I mean, it's kind of one of those things you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. But um, to me, the scene was kind of like open and like, I ain't going to even say right for taking over, but it was just it. I didn't I never really experienced um, having issues getting where I needed to go when it came to Atlanta in terms of like 
meeting people. Yeah. But on that same token, I was already extremely overwhelmed with work. <laughs> so it's kind of like to a single person, I kind of like reached the capacity. Like, I mean, uh, I know with the podcast, it might be a little different because it's like really no capacity because you can meet network and interview as many people, you know, as you know, you, you want to, but like, and it turns come when it comes to like freelance work for me in particular, it was just like, all right, I got, like I said, I was taking on 12 projects at the same time. It wasn't like delegating tasks to like other designers or anything. I was just like working on it. So it kind of got to a point where I was just like, you know, overwhelmed already, but, Mm -hmm. and I guess everybody's experience is different, but different, but I, with, within the black community, within the tech community, particularly when it comes to the design community, I I never really had any issues in in general. And 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 I'm really trying to think back, but into a a big part that was like instrumental in my ability to network was that I always had some type of entrepreneurial venture going on. And kind of like as a designer, I ended up for some reason falling to more of the person who was actually like connecting and with people who could be um, potential uh, clients. So, for example, we had me and Naeem, uh, one of the uh, designers from our the developers from Neurocode, who I actually live with for a lot of the Neurocode experience, um, was. Um, we, we had this application that we were working on called, it was really like a whole platform, but it was called Grandover. And the idea was that, uh, and this kind of falls under this like idea of like solving black people problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, that was one of the things that we took away from Nerco, like where, what opportunities can we find using our skill sets to solve black people problems? Because as an all black development shop, it was just kind of like a, unique position and angle and opportunity but with grando basically what it was was you there's (laughs) so this is a pitch that we used to do which was pretty funny it was like every black person has at least (laughs) seven cousins that rap (laughs) so why is drake's music played on the radio uh 12 times every hour where the hell are all these other rappers how many of them are actually good and why can't we hear from and why don't we hear from them? Because it really came down to this thing where like we went on SoundCloud one day and well, I, I had introduced Naeem to like the underground rap scene a little bit in general, but we kind of wanted to see how far we can push it. And we ended up finding this rapper from Chicago um, by the name of Martin Scott. And he had produced some of the like dopest music that, you know, we heard in a while. And that was significantly better depending on how, you know, um, and of course music is all subjective, but, uh, depending on, he had, he had a skill level that would be easy to argue is at the same level of the stuff that is on the radio, but didn't necessarily have, I guess, the marketing prowess or didn't get that lucky hit to like kind of reach that exponential growth. So like we were just kind of thinking really, just really diving deep into this problem that we saw for these like trying up and coming rappers who like feel like they're better than people on the radio, but like aren't getting that shine time. And um, one of the main things about it was like rap isn't getting respect in terms of like subcategories. You look at rock music, you got indie rock, you got metal rock, you got classic rock art, you know, it's a whole bunch of different, I'm not really a rock fan. So <laughs> I can't speak on that too much, but like there's certain 
beats, I mean, rap music that has like utilitarian purposes. Like you don't want to be listening to like no super deep uh, introspective rap music in the club, but you also may not want to be like always exposed to like club rap music. That's kind of like, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, kind of ignorant and, you know, just not like super, super deep. So we were thinking just like how we could use that to be able to attach different artists to different fans. So one of the things that we really liked about Martin Scott was that he he had like these jazzy beats. He was talking about, he was really talking about ideas that were kind of like deep and like, you can almost like listen to his music and and learn something or like form a new perspective or like, it's almost kind of like equivalent to reading a good book to, to a certain extent. Really came from this idea of like finding the dopest rappers, uh, that exists out in the world and giving them the opportunity to shine. Cause is this, uh, this, um, act of like, uh, that recording industry had in 1996, which basically allowed the, I forgot the name of it, but it basically allowed the, um, these music, these record uh, labels to have a monopoly over the radio stations. So you would be able to, a radio a record label would be able to, buy up a whole bunch of radio stations and control which music was played. So if they wanted this one thing to be a hit, then they could play it out of all those radio stations. And it basically kind of, we kind of got into the weeds about like how music, particularly in the rap industry is controlled um, by non-black people and kind of what the implications of that uh, that are. Um, So, because it really just kind of came down to like rap. We saw like, doing our research like in the beginning really was like this diverse array of type diverse array of music so you had introspective stuff you had dance music you had gangster music you had you know all these like different discussions of ideas but then it seemed like these days and you know a lot of people uh throw around like this idea that rap is dead it's like the most popular stuff seems to also be like the most ignorant, which is cool. And it has its place. And I'm not judging it. And I think, you know, these young kids should, you know, get it if they can, you know, but at the end of the day, where is that introspective, you know, deeper stuff? And like, why is like Kendrick Lamar and J Cole and people like that, like, you know, these outliers. So all that to say, Granda was like essentially a way to, we got these people who, talk about rap in their daily lives. So it might be like through an Instagram uh, portfolio or like through a blog and stuff like that. And we wanted to have it where they actually have, they have a site um, that's like a submission portal. So uh, for example, we link with one uh, guy who we call curators um, in New York. My rappers really rap. Uh, we created a site for him that basically accepted um, beta where he can accept rap music. Cause he was saying like, People already send me rap music and they SoundCloud links and stuff like that. And it just feels like almost disrespectful because they just feel like they're entitled to like my time and like you'll listen to my music or whatever. I mean, if you so on the web, depending on, you know, which sites you visit, you bound to see like a SoundCloud link here and there. So we were just thinking, like, how could we use experts in the industry who really care about rap and are already like would be better stakeholders and like industry execs and, you know, hardcore capitalists um to like kind of be the guardians of rap music so for him example like we build out these like social media marketing assets so he could kind of market himself as like an entrepreneur in this field 
and uh, basically says, hey, I'm taking rap submissions. You know, uh, go to my site and send me your uh, SoundCloud uh, link. And it was a basic form or whatever. So we had three SKUs. We had listen. Um, we had um, listen plus review. Then we had like listen plus review plus share. And I think it was like two dollars, ten dollars, and fifty dollars um, respectively. And we had ended up making like a little over a thousand dollars in like a matter of like three weeks because people wanted their music heard. I mean, you gotta think, put yourself in the perspective of a user. You're a rapper. You've been doing this for seven years. You know your shit's amazing. You know that you the truth. You know you have worked and you know your the lyrics that you bring, you know that the rap world needs something different. You know, you know all these things and you just having this issue of like getting outside of your following. Um, like back in the day, Gucci Mane paid the strip clubs to spin his music. <laughs> and that was like a marketing avenue that made it where he's like one of the legends in the game. And I mean, of course, he did that how he did that with the money he had. But we wanted to kind of create that same type of avenue to people, uh, to these like Instagram followers that are known for their music. So with him, like people, we would get um, emails every day and like money in the account saying like, hey, this person just bought a post. Um, and we would basically like get a snippet of their music and create this like social media player where it would play their music and then the person posted on their uh, profile. So that person got the exposure. They got like a quality review saying why they did or didn't like the music alongside a grade. And then they got, uh, um, you know, obviously they got this XYZ person, this influencer to like actually listen to their music because kind of like getting back to the whole psychology thing, like and a lot of the, the, the more, I don't even say intelligent, but some of the rappers were like, hey, you know, I understand I'm kind of in my delusion, my own delusion. I'm probably surrounded by a whole bunch of yes men who are just going to tell me my stuff is dope because they don't want to, like, tell me the truth. Or they might honestly think it's dope, but they would just wanted to be exposed to a wider perspective. And that's kind of the avenue we wanted to provide. And, like, eventually the long-term goal of it was going to be, like, one, we get a more diverse array of rap music in there. Because, I mean, rap as a medium is powerful. I think hip-hop beats have a very like hypnotic property and could you know make people more susceptible to messaging than they would be if somebody was just like reading it off a of paper or something Two, black music to me is very synonymous with black male youth and i think it's kind of to a certain extent our brand which is why i think it's a little problematic that we don't like own most of our stuff and control our own industry but you know, that's a, another conversation. And three, just black commerce. Like we wanted it a way to one, create people who are like really about the industry to make some extra money and empower themselves to like kind of do what they love doing, which is like listening to music and, you know, making a way where they can make some money off of it Two, get those rappers a proper exposure with people who are most likely to listen to their music. So for me, like, Honestly, if there was a way where I could find a pre-filtered list, because going through the trenches and trying to find a good music yourself is literally like migraine inducing. But a way to get all these like tracks like, oh, OK, this influencer has a focus on like lyrical music with jazzy beats. You know, I'm trying to uh, I want to go to his page because I know he's going to be posting all these underground artists from uh, somebody's mama's basement in D.C. who's making like the 
next dope song and or somebody in Atlanta or Oakland or whatever who's making that next hit and be able to like have that kind of like pre-curated based on the subgenre of rap music that I like. And three, you know, just I think it's a way where it could just kind of like reframe how um what like rappers aspire to be. Like, yo, you don't have to like just be on no complete ignorant stuff to like to make it if that's what you choose to do. Like in our research, we saw a lot of people like even Jay-Z had a like notable line about it, but it's just kind of like they talk about certain things because they know those certain things sells, even though they have the capacity to like go above and beyond. And like I say, it's a, it's a touchy subject because you want to be very cognizant of the fact that one, you you know, you just don't want to start calling people like, ignorant or say you know they're dumb i mean like rap music is a product of its environment Mm -hmm. and it's an environment that exists in a social political realm that you know where people may not have to access certain education or might be surrounded by you know gang violence because resources aren't really allocated for their community and you know racism capitalism all that good stuff um, you know, so it, 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 it's deeper than just like the face value of it. And, you know, I, I push myself to like, say, like, I understand to a certain extent why things are, and I don't blame, it's not a case of like blaming the victim or like, uh, you know, getting mad at our own people for like spreading certain ideas or whatever. But I just think that I just see a world where, there's many Kendrick Lamar's. Kendrick Lamar isn't like such an outlier. No disrespect to him. Dude's like a beast and, you know, deserves like the respect that he gets. But like, if we're being honest, chances are there's people who rap at Kendrick Lamar's level out there of all the rappers there are, but just hasn't got the exposure. So like, what is a mechanism? What is a platform or mechanism that's built to expose those people look like? So that, that's generally kind of like the idea of, of what Grando was. Naeem, the other guy I was working with on it, is basically focused on it solely by himself right now. But it, it's just kind of one of those examples of like this kind of like entrepreneurial thing that I'm working on. So when I'm out and about, I got something to talk to people about. And that became kind of like this go-to icebreaker for me of like, yo, I got a mission when I'm here. So I'm going to talk to everybody I can because you don't know who's a rapper, who knows a rapper. Like we ended up meeting with Isaac Hayes Jr. And he ended up being like a a pretty decent advisor and helping us understand like the mechanics of the music industry and kind of like getting a little deeper uh, into that. Um, But you just you just never know who you meet, who can like be instrumental. Like the reason I'm really in California right now is because. Uh, when I was at uh, in DC, I met one of the homies, one of who I'm actually working on a clothing line with, who um, whose old professor was able to get him a job at Google. So he referred me, and then I had went through like six months of interviewing and six uh, then six onsite interviews. They ended up telling me no, but that was like it really helped me calibrate like my skill level and be like, oh, okay, like I have an opportunity to like really do something. Like let me not sit here and like be like victimized by like this lack of self-worth like let me push this as far as it can go if i'm gonna be under this idea this realm of uh you know like looking for a job and you know working for a a large tech company so 
So with all of that, I mean, I guess I'm curious to know, like, what are you most excited about at the moment? I know you're still very new at Etsy, but do you have anything coming up like in the summer that you're interested about? Anything like that? Today actually is my birthday. So um, oh, well, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Etsy is giving me this idea that I can control like my career and my brand. And I'm really kind of at this point honing in on what I want to do as a designer um, who I want to be, like, I want to hold true to my promise of like passing on the torch to the next generation. And I think it's important for me to be an inspiration. And I think to a certain extent, I have a duty to show people that are like me, black, young, uh, girls and boys that like, Hey, design is an opportunity that you can take, um, me with my untraditional background, in terms of not getting a college degree and not necessarily being like extremely great uh, during my academic career, showing that like, hey, if you got enough passion, like you can really learn and pursue uh, this this career in design. There's an infinite amount of resources online. Uh, just like kind of get out there and network and, you know, do what you have to uh, do. And like, don't feel free. Don't feel bad about like obsessing with it. Like, meet people like-minded people who have like similar goals to you and just kind of like push forward and, you know, spend that time uh, doing what you got to do to develop those skills. But like from the perspective of like, I'm 28 new year in my life, just got this new gig, just moved out to Oakland. Just thinking about like really being intentional with my career, designing it, coming up with goals, figuring out how I can give back to the community that's given so much to me. Um, one of the, one of the projects that I'm like really interested in is working on mindfulness in the black community mm. and kind of playing with the idea of what that looks like. I think there's this stigma around mental health in the black community where they basically like, yo, that's some white people shit. <laughs> like it's like black people, particularly African Americans could use healing more so than like any group that I can speak to. Uh, obviously I'm a little biased because I'm African-American, but like just thinking about how can I rebrand meditation and mindfulness to remove this kind of negative stigma uh, of away from it. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, how much Charlemagne the God has been like using his platform to kind of spread mindfulness or whatever. But I don't know. I just think there's opportunity there. I kind of been playing with this idea of using like hip hop beats as a way to, to make it more palatable and digestible, um, particularly for like black youth and like provide like this kind of digital experience that can recreate the meditative experience without making it feel so like, you know, middle aged yoga mom ish. But it's, it's really just kind of honing on that. That's what I'm interested in. I'm really kind of getting deeper into the um, research phase of it and just kind of like experimenting and seeing what works or not. But I, I think that could be really instrumental in terms of like healing. Like I kind of had this vision of like, <laughs> I don't know if you heard uh, that J. Cole track where he's talking about meditate, mm-hmm. meditate. Uh, and it really just got me inspired. Like what would, it, would a world look like where Young Thug is reading like a meditation track or like walking you through? You Have you used Headspace? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what would it be like if Young Thug was on a track <laughs> for a Headspace uh, <laughs> type thing, walking you through the meditation? Like to what extent would can these figures that are already popular and all like 
cooler than cool kind of like sidestep this negative stigma around mental health and like how can we push that forward and is that you know what we um need is like this idea of like the hierarchy of needs and like you know people can't really focus on like actualization and like becoming their best selves if they can't you know feed their family and eat so you know it's certain things you got to take into consideration but um, also like meditation has proven to be a something that in, improves levels of empathy and, and increases empathy so like being able to empathize with your neighbor and like function together I think is is a big part of it too and just like kind of building the community I'll, I'm still trying to figure it all out um, and really figure out how I apply intentionality because like learning from my past mistakes it's just like yo time is finite you know, to a certain extent, plan B is a distraction from plan A. So like, what do I want to do with my time here on earth? And what could be the most impactful utilizing the skill set that I have? And so just kind of like understanding that. And like I said, I'm very passionate about, you know, giving back to particularly the black community and doing what I can to like, push us forward. Like I'm the only black person at at the SC San Francisco office. And like, I think that's a problem. Like, uh, it should be, I know SC is one of the best, not, I'm not gonna say the best, like I've done the research to that extent. I know SC is pretty good with, um, diverse, being diverse. And I know that talking to the black community within SC, you know, they're happy with the progress, but obviously it's like, how do we do better? You know, how do we get more? How do we more inclusive? You know, it, the ball really never stops. And for my time here, I want to do as much as I can, um, to, to help that cause. But like I said, in terms of like out being outside of SE, I just want to just figure out the best way I can utilize my skills to give back and to just rechange this idea of what a designer looks like. You know, I, I'm pretty intentional when it comes to like, not like conforming in terms of dress, like I wear what I want to wear. I mean, of course, most, uh, um, product companies and tech companies are pretty loose in terms of like attire and stuff like that, but I'm not a, I, I try to the first extent not to like code switch and just like be my authentic self. I actually met this one guy in Atlanta who uh, ended up working like pretty high up at Coca-Cola, but he was just like one of the best things that I could ever tell you is just like be yourself. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. And that's like how you're going to get the most respect in, in this game. And, you know, um, you know, just kind of trying to figure that out. I mean, to be honest, it's, for me, my life is like the more you know, the more you don't know. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of like, I mean, life in itself is just like a wild, confusing experience. And the you, you know, it is only so much that you can know. So I, I have a lot more questions than I do answers. But it's really just about doing what I can to like, I think Muhammad Ali said it, but I think it might have been a misquote to a, a, a black woman who originally said it. But it's just like your time here is really about doing what you can for other people. I think that's like one of the key ways to like achieve like this idea of like happiness. I don't think chasing money, even though I do think there's an advantage to like, you know, having money and moving forward from that perspective, but I don't think like chasing money is going to make you even happier. I think it's about building those connections and understanding that, you know, giving back to a certain extent is like giving to yourself the the gift of giving. So yeah, hopefully I answered your question. Mm -hmm. So I guess this is kind of a good place to wrap things up here. Um, 
So where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah, definitely. So um, my Instagram, which I'm most active on, uh, is jamil.design. Uh, that's also the URL to my website. And or you can go to jamilbonic.com, both work. And you can check out my Dribble to show, see some of my visual design stuff at dribble.com slash jamilbonic, uh, J-A-M-I-L. B as in boy, O-N-N-I-C-K. Uh, one of the homies uh, that I was talking about who actually kind of got me out this way, um, he's a, a user experience researcher at YouTube. We're both working on a clothing line. Uh, it's called The Cruel World. And it's like uh, a real look at like stuff that's going on and like all the like messed up stuff, but with a slightly um, satirical lens. I think the closest example I could say would probably be like a daily show um, where, you know, he talks about real stuff, but he makes it a little bit more digestible by like adding this kind of like layer of comedy to it. But that's a streetwear clothing line that we're in the process of uh, getting out. And you can uh, check that out at a cruelworld.co. But yeah, that's 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 for the most part um, the best ways to, to reach out to get in contact. All right. Well, uh, Jamil Bonick, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I think aside from just all the connections that it seems like we definitely have from you being here in Atlanta, I also really get a sense that uh, having strong community ties is something that is super important to you. It's not only important, I think, in terms of your career, but also in the work that you want to do and put out there in the world. You want to make sure that you're being impactful in the community. And we need we need more designers that are doing that. So I'm glad to really be able to to talk with you and to share that with our audience. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh man, thank you for having me, man. Like uh, I'm definitely excited, uh, happy to be here, and you know I'm proud of the work you've been doing, and proud of uh, your ability and your effort to, you know, create a, a a strong black network within the design and development community. I think is very uh, strong work, and super happy to be a part of it. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Jamil Bonnick and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jamil and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. This episode is sponsored by Sappy North America's Ideas That Matter program. Sappy, a maker of high quality printing, packaging, and release papers, as well as dissolving wood pulp, is now celebrating the 20th year of this unique grant competition. Since it began, the program has given more than $13 million in grants and supported more than 500 projects to benefit social causes. Ideas That Matter has also worked with amazing designers, many of whom we've also featured on Revision Path, including Dee Nichols, Rich Holland, Dory Tunstall, Silas Monroe, Jacinda Walker, Maurice Woods, Bobby Martin Jr., and Antoinette Carroll, who will also be a judge this year. If you're a designer who cares about social issues, whether you're a professional designer, a student, or part of a design team, The 2019 deadline to apply for a grant in this program is July 19th. To learn more, visit sappy.com forward slash ideas that matter. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. 
Sign your team up for a free 30-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Deanna Testa and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really, really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter also. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.